First John chapter two. In the the text that John David preached on last week, John David's not here, I don't think, but I did want to thank him publicly for stepping in and and leading you guys in that. Uh, I'll quote him a couple of times this morning. But John answered a question. I mean the Apostle John, not John David. Uh, we'll, we'll have to keep them straight here today. Um, but the Apostle John answered a question in the text that you all looked at last week that's really a fundamental question, a common question that most every Christian is going to ask themselves at one point or another. You probably have before, and it's this. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know, K-N-O-W, how do I know that I know God? Look back at verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. This is the question that he's answering here. What is John's answer? What is the Apostle John's answer to this question? How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I know the Lord? It's this. We keep his commands. It's not complicated. We keep his commands. There's no confusing checklist or you know important necessary flow chart or even any fine print to read through here you know that you know god if you do what he says if you keep his word john goes on there to say that if you say that you know god but you don't care about how he's told you to live then you actually lie about knowing god in the first place If you say you know God, but you never do the things that he's laid out in Scripture for us to do as believers, then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says something that rubs against us, but he says, then the truth is not in you. You're a liar. Now, John goes on to explain what that looks like when we live it out. What knowing God looks like when we live it out, and it's this, you'll love other people. You'll love. You'll love the brethren. You'll love people. So not only are you going to love God, not only are you going to obey obey his commands, but you're also going to love your brother, neighbor, friend. That's what John's newly refreshed old command says, love your brother. So some people ask, okay, well, then who's my brother? That sounds familiar to a question that Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? But Jesus has the answer when we say, who's my brother then? If I'm supposed to love Matthew 12 Someone asked Jesus this exact question. Well, who then is my mother and my brothers? You know what his answer was? He stretched out his hand towards the disciples and he said, there. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. Okay? So Jesus has already defined John's term for brother here in this text. He said, anyone who does the will of God is my brother. Okay, well then what is the will of God? Jesus helps us in this too. In John chapter 6 verse 40, he says very plainly, for this is the will of my father. Here it is. That anyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the will of Jesus. It's the will of the father because Jesus came to do his will. So think about this. Following Jesus' own personal explanations, we see what John is really getting at here in 1 John chapter 2. John is good at making things simple. Praise the Lord. It's a good thing. And he does it, especially in his letters to the church in the epistles. At its most basic so far in the book of 1 John, 
we've, we've heard John say some very simple things. Three things in particular. He says, know Jesus, this is from chapter 1, know who he is, obey God, and love other people. It's not complicated. I can't tell you how an internal combustion engine works. I can't explain that to you. I can't tell you how anybody thought adding letters to math was ever a good idea. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me. Cannot explain it. I also can't explain how, how as parents, we can be so frustrated with our child and so full of love for them at the same time. It doesn't make sense. I can't explain those things to you. There are plenty of things that get complicated and are beyond our grasp of understanding, but I don't think this is one of them. I really don't. I don't think this teaching of John is one of those things. In fact, I think it's pretty clear and reasonable, even to the the young minds in the room this morning, those who are sitting up here maybe even, this is pretty clear and simple and easy to understand. Here's the thing. I don't think that comprehension is generally our problem with what John is telling us here. I think motivation is. Let me say that again. I don't think comprehension is our problem for the most part. I think motivation is. Let me give you an example. I know up here, I know from God's word that I'm not supposed to covet what my neighbor has. And yet, I look at what he has and I desire to get my hands on the same kinds of things, even though I know that that's wrong. I know it's not right to harbor bitterness in my heart towards someone else. But you know what? Keeping it just kind of under the surface in my back pocket, so to speak, sort of gives me a feeling of power and control over them in our relationship. So I just kind of keep it tucked away there. I know I'm not supposed to, but I do. Now, just to be clear, those things that I just mentioned are clear sin in Scripture. It's not an excuse. It's not a reason to do those things. Regardless of how we justify them, God calls them wrong. I think most of the time we actually know the right thing to do. Comprehension isn't our problem. We just aren't motivated enough to do it. We aren't convinced that the effort is worth the inconvenience of obedience. This is going to indicate that we are either, number one, still walking in darkness and don't really know God, or, number two, this is going to indicate that we just have some major confessing and repenting to do in our lives. Either way, I think, though, we're buying into the lies offered by the darkness instead of running towards the light. And we learned already from John that God is light. In him is zero darkness at all. So if you're wrestling with whether you really know God or not, maybe you're there. Maybe you're here this morning. Do I really, am I really saved? Do I really know God? Here's what you can do. Look at your lifestyle. Evaluate how you are living. Are your patterns of behavior marked by obedience to the word? Or being a slave to the flesh? If you're carrying around bitterness towards someone or hate towards someone or envy Please recognize that these things are are sin and confess it and release it to the Lord. If we want to be people who walk the walk, 
You guys know that phrase, right? We want to be people that walk the walk and who don't just talk the talk. Then look at verse 6 of chapter 2. What does it say? Well, then we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We're talking about Jesus. If we, if we want to walk the same way that Jesus did, we're going to have to model our lives after what is, is told of, uh, to us from him in his word. Not to try to bring the word in submission to what we want. I appreciate what commentator Daniel Aiken says about this. He says, if you want to know day by day that you know him, that you are saved, it's simple. Look to his perfect advocacy and atoning work on your behalf and keep his commands. So we look to Christ, not our own efforts. We look to him in order to keep his commands. That's the test here. How do we know that we're saved? Do we keep his commands? John David last week said, the more I know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I know him. I'm going to build on that this week and say, To know God is to love him, and to love God is to obey him. To know God is to love him, and to love God is to obey him. Many of us are looking for assurance of salvation, and I don't think it's wrong for us to do that. We're looking for it. John 2, here in in, in John's epistle, he's revealing two big-time principles of how we can know assurance. And they're this obedience and love do you obey god do you love others these things are evidences of walking the walk these things are proof that salvation has taken root within us so in our text today which we're going to read in just a moment john is preparing his listeners for something so you're being prepared for something that john is getting ready to tell us in chapter two At the beginning of our text, actually, at the end of it, what we're going to talk about next week is a warning. And this is what Jason mentioned with the kids. He said, do not love the world, right? So next week, we're going to talk about the kind of love that God hates. It's a weird way to think about that, but there's a kind of love that God hates. But here, he's he's building them up to hear that message. He's building us up to hear that message. Today, he is encouraging and reminding Christians in all stages of life, all ages, why he's writing to them. So, ages and stages, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 is our text today. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. What does John say there right at the beginning? I'm writing to you. I've written these things to you. Here's his purpose in writing these things. Over and over, he's talking this way in addressing the church body. And guess what he's referring to? All the stuff that he's previously said. 
So the stuff about loving your brother, stuff about obeying God, stuff about knowing Jesus, this is what he's saying. I'm right, I've written to you all of those things because of this. And he's so insistent on this. It's interesting to me. He repeats this over and over, and he's insistent on his explaining his purpose for these things because he wants to bring assurance to his readers. I think that's his goal in this is here's how you can know I'm writing these things so you can know. And he directs what he says to three specific groups. He he mentions children, he mentions fathers, and he mentions young men. And he addresses really each of those groups twice in this chapter. The second time he addresses uh, young men or children, rather, will come towards the end of the chapter. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at that. But he addresses them twice in this chapter. John David last week mentioned how the Apostle John addresses believers in this letter, and sometimes he refers to them as little children. That is a term of endearment, a term of affection, kind of like parents talking to the kids that they love. You're my child whom I love. Uh, John was probably getting older. The Apostle John was probably getting up in, in years here. And so as you get older, you hopefully we start to tend to kind of express our affection to those younger that we care about more. Uh, and, and this was John kind of doing that. So he starts off in verse 12, you can glance back at that, by addressing the church believers as if they were his beloved children. Now let me, let's take a side note for a second here. In your English translations, this is probably not even a question in your mind, but I'll point something out. John uses two different words for children in this chapter. So it's a little helpful uh, in kind of keeping things straight and to avoid confusion to know what he's talking about. So in verse 1, he uses the term, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the Greek name, and I'm probably going to really butcher it, so Greek scholars, please have mercy on me. But uh, he uses the term technion, okay, for children. And this really means darling or beloved. Right? He uses that same word in verse 12. But if you look in verse 13, and then also in verse 18, he uses a different word for children. He uses the word pahedion, which means an infant or a partially grown boy or girl. Figuratively, we could say that that means immature or young Christian, a young believer by age. And I I mentioned this, like I said, because in your English translation, it's just all children, but in the Greek, it's different. John had different intents. I don't think it changes a whole awful lot about how we interpret and apply what John is saying here, but it does help us to avoid some confusion. It's always good to know what the original author is saying and why. So let's just take a second and kind of back up and get sort of a bird's eye view of this. So if you're looking at the text, John opens the chapter, chapter 2, by referring to the church as his little children, technion little children in general. Then he switches to address immature believers in kind of the middle, in the section that we're in, Pahedion. And then he closes out the chapter at the very end in verse 28 by switching back to addressing the church as a whole using the the term little children, technion. So in verse 12, he's saying, church, beloved children, beloved little ones, what does he say to them? Your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. Look at that in your Bible. If you've got it open, or if you've got your Bible app open, just read that sentence again to yourself. 
This is an incredible sentence. Based on you walking the walk in obedience and love, there is no doubt that your sins are forgiven. There doesn't have to be any doubt here. John lists this as a specific reason to why he's writing to the church, to his, to these immature believers, so that they know their sins have been forgiven. Not just a head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge of God that they have been forgiven of their sins. But you know what? Their sins haven't been forgiven so that they can go out and just live however they want. And their sins haven't been forgiven so they can go back to living how they used to. Well, what does he say? He says, your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's, that's big. That's important to us. Their sins are forgiven because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so that they might now go and live for him. Not for the sake of any goodness that they produce, but for the sake of Christ alone. His blood, his sacrifice. And it reaches to all sin. He's already talked about this at the end of chapter 1. It reaches to every sin. Original sin, it overcomes. Our secret sins that we don't tell anybody about. Our open sins that people see. Our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. His forgiveness covers it all. Guys, believers specifically this morning, I I hope that you hear this. Your sins were forgiven so that you can go now live for his name's sake. Not for your own. Not for your own desires. If your sins have been forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, they were removed so that you could now go and live differently than you were before. Is this differentness evident in your life? Is it seen clearly or has not really anything changed since you've started professing Jesus? John also says that these children in verse 13, that they know the Father. Knowing the Father is only possible by having your sins forgiven by the Son. Knowing the Father is only possible by having your sins forgiven by the Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself claims this very thing in John 14, 6. You're probably familiar with the verse. He says that the only way to come to the Father is through him. Do you know the Father? If you claim to know the Father, do you know him better and better? If not, it may be because you've never given yourself completely over to his son. You've never really gone through the right channel to be saved. Look at verse 13 again. John addresses not just little children here. He addresses spiritual fathers. And he doesn't address them as fathers because they have a lot of spiritual children or anything like that, but because they're no longer babies in Christ. They're no longer immature believers anymore. They're not young men either. So he calls them fathers. So they're older in age. They're older in spiritual maturity specifically. This makes sense. Uh, Jews in that time especially would refer to older, wiser men of age and wisdom as their fathers. These guys were respected older men in the community. And they were really wise, especially in the ways of the Lord. John says that these fathers have known him who is from the beginning. 
have known him. So who's he talking about? Well, we already know from verse 1 of chapter 1 that John has tightly paired Jesus with his divine nature. And he said a couple of things about him that are pretty significant. That he was the one who was from the beginning. And then in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that he is the eternal life who was with the Father. So these older Christian guys, these older fathers specifically, have been acquainted with God through Jesus Christ for a long time. For some lengthy amount of time. And so the Apostle John is writing to them and he is appealing to them because of their experience with Jesus. But look at what else he writes. I think this is interesting. In verse 14, because he talks to fathers again in verse 14. Just glance down and and look at what he wrote to fathers. Chapter 2, verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That sounds a little familiar, right? It's like word for word what he's already said to them. Now, why would he do that? Why would John say the exact same thing to fathers? There's always a reason for repetition, especially in biblical writing. It's for emphasis. So I think John is writing this to fathers word for word again to point out the weight that comes with being an older and mature Christian. The responsibility that comes from being experienced in Christ. These are the folks who have endured years of spiritual battles. Years of spiritual battles. And, and you know, their physical bodies may be getting weary. It might start being broken down. But oftentimes, and I think immediately someone will come to your mind, you know an older Christian that has been walking with the Lord for a long time who in their spirit is spry and full of energy, right? I always thought of Paul Aiken that way, 99 and a half years old, and he was full of spiritual energy. Despite what our culture, especially in the United States, despite what our culture would tell us about getting older and retiring and what kind of the twilight of life might bring, being a mature believer doesn't bring with it an excessive amount of free time to just waste as we please. It's not what it's for. Christian maturity, John, I think, is saying here, brings with it a responsibility to the church and specifically to those Christians who are younger than us in the faith, a responsibility to be actively engaged to continue to be engaged. Why? Because you know the Lord better than a lot of the rest of us do. Your experience with him is longer. You fought more battles. You have wisdom that we need desperately. Now, just as an FYI here, the term father that John is using certainly has some masculine tones to it, but really it's just a a general term for a parent here. So ladies, you don't get off the hook when we're talking about this. Uh, and, and we have examples of that, multitude of examples of that in Scripture. I think immediately of Timothy's mom and grandma who really raised him in the faith. Praise God for them. Every believer, regardless of gender and age, then has the privilege and I would say the responsibility to lead younger believers. And do you know what the Bible calls that? discipleship. It's not something that we need to program for. It's something that naturally happens in the outflowing of of the love of God in a believer's life. We will invest in younger Christians. Look at 
what else he says in verse 13. He writes to young men. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. That's a, that's a pretty big statement, don't you think? Who's the evil one? This is not complicated either. He's talking about the enemy, Satan. You've overcome the evil one. Now, this is good news, I think, for some of you. But the term young men here is actually youth. And it's referring to people 40 years and younger. So some of you who are not quite yet 40, you're youth. You're a young person. <laughs> When's your birthday, Jason? Again? Yeah, that's what I thought. He'll be 40 soon. This only applies to you for a little while. You know what? This is the stage, though, where you're not a baby in Christ anymore, but you also haven't racked up the years of experience as maybe a, you know, a spiritual parent. You're not yet full of that kind of wisdom. But John says that they've overcome, you have overcome the evil one. How? How could we, how could we do this? John isn't praising their own abilities here. He's encouraging them, but he's not praising their own ability to overcome. I, I think we know this based on in verse 14, how John kind of expands. This is the second time in verse 14, how he addresses young men. And he says this, he says it again, because you are strong and you've overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in you. There it is. That's it. That's the real reason how they overcome the evil one. Because of the word of God. It's no coincidence that John uses the word abide 23 times in this book. In 1 John, he uses it 23 times. He's used it already when talking about uh, continuing. So that's what abide means, to continue, to stay, to remain, to endure, to stand. Earlier, John has used the word abide to talk about Christians abiding in the light, to remaining, standing in the light. And here now, he explains that believers are strong when the word of God abides in us. Does God's word abide in you? Does God's word remain? Does it endure in you? You can't really be strong without it. You can't really overcome the evil one without it. It's his word. Look back at what John says to new believers in verse 13. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. And I think the beauty is in its simplicity here. The one true creator God is now your Father. Let's sink in for a moment. Every one of us has a different experience with our earthly fathers. Earthly fathers, and I'm throwing myself into this group too, we fall prey to all kinds of things, to uh, not disciplining how we should, when we should, to forgetfulness, to passivity in the home, to provoking our kids and our family to anger when we shouldn't. We fall prey to all kinds of things that, praise God, our Heavenly Father does not. So we can say with confidence here that we have a good Father. But you know what? He's better than just a good Father. He's a great Father. He is a perfect Father. He's a perfect provider. He's a perfect protector. That's who our Father is. The one true Creator God 
is now our Father in Christ. But you know what? He's only known through a relationship with His Son. That kind of relationship, friends, is still offered today. A relationship with God the Father is still offered today. You know what? It doesn't come through a lifetime of good deeds, though. It doesn't come from your continued obedience, although God has called us to that. It doesn't come from us beating our our flesh into submission like people of old used to think. It doesn't come from any of that. A relationship with Jesus is not based on your performance. It's based on His grace, God's grace towards you. If you trust Him, if you believe Him, you can enter into that relationship with the Father right here, right now. But it takes something from you. It takes giving up control of yourself, of your life. It takes laying down your arms against God, against truth, and submitting to it, leaving your sins behind and following Jesus. Isn't that what he called all of his disciples to? He did call his original disciples to leave their profession, their fishing nets, their tax collecting. And he he called them to leave that behind. But in reality, as he explains in Luke 14, he's calling every believer that follows him to leave it all behind. So much so that it looks like you hate your family. Your love for God overshadows your love for anything else. Now maybe we're just starting off As Christians, maybe it hasn't been that long since you put your faith in Christ and you'd consider yourself one of God's little children in faith in maturity level. Maybe you've known him for a little, a little while, but you're, you're not an experienced Christian. You're kind of in that young person, that youth age, or maybe you are an experienced soldier in the army of the Lord and you've endured battles Age doesn't always accompany those things. There are Christians who are younger that have endured and who God has given incredible wisdom to. We need to listen to those people. But you know what? Every believer has the privilege of assurance, but also has the responsibility of engaging with people younger than them, with the church. So whatever age or stage you are in today, wherever you would consider yourself, the level of your engagement is directly related to your assurance. Let me say that again, because this thought struck me this week. No matter where you consider yourself in your maturity level in Christ, how engaged you are going to be is related to how sure you are that God is your father. Because if you're timid and you don't know, and you're constantly wondering, you're not going to go boldly and preach the gospel usually. But if you have confidence like Jesus says in John chapter 10, that no one can snatch you out of his hand and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, if you have that kind of confidence, you will go boldly and preach that kind of love to people around you who desperately need to hear it. I'd invite you, whatever that next step might look like today, take it. Don't sit back in your chair listening this morning and be content to stay where you're at. Take the next step. And I, I don't know exactly what that means for every one of you, but if you're, if you're not sure and you'd like to talk more, I'm going to stand up here while uh, I'll stand on the front row while the band leads us in one more song. If you want to contact me this week and we can sit down together 
and we can talk. What does that next step look like? I, I want, and you're saying, I want to obey. I, I want to love others. I want to know Jesus, but I don't know how to take that next step. We'll figure it out. Let's pray together before we sing. Lord, I thank you for your word. No matter what age, no matter what stage we're in, as Christians, Lord, you're calling us to take the next step. And I pray that we would, in faith, do that. But Lord, inevitably, there may be some that are here or listening this morning that may be recognized for the first time, or maybe they've known it for a long time, I don't know, Lord, but they say, I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. Lord, they can do that right here today, right now in this moment. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them grace to repent of their sin, to turn in faith to Jesus, and then be able to with confidence say that you, God, are our Father, or my Father. Thank you that this is all of grace. It's not of our effort. It's not of our good deeds. Lord, it is what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. And I pray that we would boldly claim that and cling to that this morning, Lord. Move in us as we sing now in Christ's name.